You are listening to Views from the Peak, a mini-series created and published by the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Each month we're publishing episodes whereby we sit down with members of our own church, members of our own congregation who have survived something really, really challenging to their faith. Things that, to be honest, made them contemplate quitting on God altogether. To make sure we offer you a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode, you might hear about experiences with depression, infertility, addiction, cancer, suicide, and more. The whole goal of this podcast is to capture the raw honesty of what it is like traveling through these dark valleys of faith and life. But furthermore, it's to hear about how they've experienced and encountered hope on the other side where and how they've encountered views of God's grace showing up in some really unlikely places. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Brenda and Holland Steen. Brenda uh, is Holland's mom, and today you're going to hear about their experience battling addiction. And the reason why we wanted to capture this as a two-part episode is because we wanted you to hear uh, the experience of the addict, and the person who loves and is trying desperately to support and care for the person battling addiction. Our hope in this episode is that if this has been your experience or the experience of a loved one in your life, you might be able to resonate with this story and find the hope that they have found. We hope you enjoy. Well, friends, welcome back for another episode of Views from the Peak. Uh, Today, we are sitting down with uh, one of my good friends who I've known for, I want to say like five years now, right? Longer than that? Five? Shorter than that? Six? Yeah. Yeah. My friend, my brother from another mother, friends, I'm going to introduce you to Hollenstein. Holland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Glad to be here. Holland is joining us because, um, as you know from uh, this podcast, one of the things that we are um, really passionate about at the peak, one of the things we're really passionate about at our church is telling raw, honest stories, not just about the, the peaks of our spiritual journeys, but the valleys. And so one of the places we wanted to explore very early on in this conversation was addiction and the path to recovery. And this is one of those episodes that's actually going to be told from two different vantage points. You're going to hear both from Holland, uh, who uh, battled battles addiction, and you're going to hear uh, portions of the story from his mom, Brenda. Uh, and so the hope is that this podcast, this episode in particular, really speaks to the valleys, it speaks to the troubles, the struggles of uh, those battling addiction and those trying to love and support someone who is battling addiction. So... Let's just start here. Let's jump in right here. Okay. I, I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to go on a limb. I think that a lot of people who listen to this, <clears throat> a lot of people who listen to this, whenever they hear the term addict, they think about someone who suffers from substance abuse, who's an alcoholic or whatever. There are certain images that come up in our minds. 
Maybe it's an image we got from a TV show or from a movie. It's someone who's disheveled, who doesn't have their life together. They're making a mess of stuff, yada, 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 yada. Uh, we'll post a picture of you because um, you're a devilishly handsome young man uh, to begin with. But also just to prove like, but you're a normal looking dude. You come from a pretty normal family. And so like, I mean, normal is all relative. It all is what it is. But I guess like one of the re things that I, I, one of the things I, I'm excited about with this episode is to sort of debunk this myth that uh, those who are battling addiction and secrecy, it's, or it's, it's obvious, like, oh, well, it's obvious. We'll just know. Because <clears throat> one of the things I know about um, living with an addict myself is that you get really darn good at hiding it, really good at sort of masking it. And so I would love to, I want to back up this story like, from the beginning, whatever the, that means, whatever, wherever the beginning is, because I would love for you to share a little bit of what it was like being raised in your family and what it was like with your brothers, with your parents, because again, you can sort of approach this conversation as an outsider, someone who doesn't have direct experience of this and say, oh, well, most addicts probably come from broken homes and there's no love and support. Like that wasn't your story. So Tell us a little bit about your story. What was it like growing up as Holland and the Steen family? I will start by saying this. The irony in all of it, though, is later on, uh, towards the end, when I began to start getting help, the normalcy that you speak of, I then realized actually uh, enabled me to continue to be in this valley much, much longer. The reality is because of how I look, because of where I came from, who my family was, financial aspects to it. You know, it, when I went to that first court date, for example, rather than getting a max sentence and it's abundantly clear that I have a problem with drugs, how many times did I get probation, which gave me the green light that everything was okay to continue to use. Um, so the reality is, is like, this is something that even in my line of work, we're trying to, you know, look into much, much faster because you have the other piece too of the family of, we don't fit that criteria either. So my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, maybe they're just struggling, but, but they're not that because that's not what we've been told our whole lives is an individual who suffers with addiction, right? So, so then you're like fighting two battles. You're not only fighting the battle of addiction, but you're fighting this like facade that in many ways is masking and hiding the real problem. So you have to like confront both of them maybe at the same time or uh, anyway, but it, it, it's a good it, point. Yes, it, it's, it's a good it's point. It's a matter of even just breaking the idea of just like, hey, you, the amount of phone calls or conversations I have where I, I hate to do it, but sometimes tough love is the only way. But I'm explaining to a mom of, hey, you're going to kill your son. Hmm. The fact that you're too embarrassed or, or honestly too naive to accept the fact that your son is that person that you swore you would never raise. The reality is you didn't do this, right? It, it, addiction does not discriminate. doesn't matter you know, who you are, where you came from, rich, poor, black, white. Addiction is addiction. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of... A lot of the battle isn't even trying to help the individual. A lot of battle is getting the family and the individual to understand that they are that individual that needs help. In oh the my gosh. Well, that's such, I, that's so powerful. I didn't even, like the line you said to the mom of like, your inability or unwillingness to accept this is killing him. 
Like it's it's actually just it's punting the ball so far down the field that we're just it's getting harder and harder to even deal with the root problem. Man. So I assume this was a part of your experience early on, maybe ways like you I mean you're hinting at this, like the family in which you grew up, the part of the country, the part like the particular community you were raised in. You had a lot of ways to hide and mask and say, no, it's just a, just a normal dude. Just a normal. So how was that a part of your story? So tell me about like, so start wherever you want to start, but tell me about sort of like that desire within you to use normalcy, whatever that means as a crutch, as a way of sort of like, or something you never measured up to. And then it, and then just sort of found yourself crumbling underneath the pressure of it. Correct. And I think a big thing is that I'll, I'll jump around because there's parts that make the uh, the entire timeline make sense versus just starting at day one and then going through a story. Um, but hints or, or just little snippets that would make it beneficial. But for example, you know, a couple years into when the problem started, right? My family, my parents, they take myself uh, and then that we go to a, a psychiatrist or we go to a, a therapist and the reality is I, I vaguely remember my mom kind of just being distraught and explaining to the therapist, like, he had a great childhood. You know, there, there was no domestic violence. There was, you know, nothing that, you know, the in the early 2000s, a therapist would look at this 15-year-old boy and say, like, why is he escaping in drugs? What happened to him? You know, did he get molested as a kid? Did he get kidnapped? All these things that, again, has to happen. The which are, which way- are some people's story. That's some people's reality. But it's not everybody's. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. The extreme is not always the case. Because mm. that was it, it was it was just one of those things where it's it, they were looking. Everyone wants to have a reason for a problem. They want to know why. Sometimes if 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 they can't understand it, it frustrates them. So they need a, uh, a very a, just perfect example, a tangible thing they can hold on to. Of this makes sense. And it's crazy, you know. If somebody it gets, uh, if somebody. I don't, I don't really know how to explain or not to get too far off the podcast, but people want to have something to blame. Mm. Holland became uh, addicted to a substance. Well, let's find something to blame for it rather than it just happening. Because obviously the go-to is what did mom and dad do, right? That's another factor in, in the whole story is my mom and dad... They, they are still happily married to this day, right? They are probably single-handedly the sweetest couple I've personally ever met. Um, childhood, great. Never wanted anything. Always had shoes on my feet. Wanted to play sports. They'd sign me up. You know, always food in the fridge. Grew up in a nice neighborhood like the works. Nothing out of the ordinary um, that would lead someone to believe, oh, okay, so this happened to Holland. It makes sense why he's a raging alcoholic. No, nothing like that. Nothing to say it makes sense. It just happened. So the irony is in a lot of individuals I speak to that struggle with substances, sometimes in this arena, it kind of is the same way. But, you know, addiction is something that I don't just, you know, it's not just mine alone. There are other loved ones that struggle with addiction as well. And so you see that as a child. And and so this is my story, but I saw that and I said, you know, I don't like alcohol because of X, Y, Z that I saw as a kid. I blamed the alcohol for why this was happening in the family. Um, and so I, I was like, I'm never going to drink. 
you know, I, I didn't want to drink. I hated alcohol. I didn't want to do that. And then the irony is, is you know, I, I started drinking with my brothers because it was a social thing. And, you know, sometimes you hear a story of someone where they just, they, they took the first sip or they, they got that first high and they were just, you know, this is what I've been looking for. Right, whatever the problem was, whatever that underlying thing, whether it was abandonment or, or anxiety or depression, but they took that first sip and they said, "This is, I like this," and, and then they chased that. For me, it wasn't instantaneous from the substance. It was the fact that my brother, uh, my oldest brother, who's a key part in it, um, I was accepted by him. As long as I was drinking, I was allowed to hang out with him and his older friends because they were in high school and that's what they were doing. So. I associated if I drink beer, then I can hang out with my older brother and his friends, and now I'm accepted and I'm not abandoned from them. I'm not isolated with no friends. I have friends again, I have community again. So I associated using with that connection. And so from there on, it was as long as I'm drinking, I'm drinking with people, and if I'm drinking with people, I'm not alone. Well, thank you for pointing that out because I think like, <clears throat> that's another misnomer and a misconception I think of folks who suffer from addiction is that it's just it, you, like you're just saying like they've heard maybe and, and that is some people's story that like maybe like the moment they took a sip it just like spiraled or whatever but I love I love when uh, people tell their stories and they help us understand that it's it's never just the thing it's there's always a thing behind the thing so like in your in your story, so you're like, it's a beer is the thing or like drinking is the thing. Alcohol is the thing. But the thing behind the thing is you're going through an experience in, so you're in middle school, high school. How old are you? Oh, man, I was probably sixth grade. So you're going through that time that every single listener can connect with and resonate with, which is this time where you feel super insecure about everything. Your voice is cracking. You got pimples. Like it's just the... Like, it's the worst. It's, the, it's so hard. And so all of us are looking, like, regardless if we want to admit it or not, everyone during that season of life is looking for something external to help sort of counteract or, you know, help control this internal anxiety or insecurity or whatever. So some of us, we find it in school. We just overachieve in school. We find it in sports. But deep down, the, the, the primal thing we're all looking for is belonging belonging and so i guess i guess just like thank you for helping us unpack that a little bit to, so that i think that's just correcting a misconception i think that like there's a, oftentimes the motive for many addicts is actually deep deep down a really really good one and it's a understandable one it's belonging it was that was the first thing that drove this impulse well and, and it's funny kyle because you and i will speak about this and it'll make sense because we've had this conversation but in, in my day-to-day job where I'm explaining addiction to family members, there's a lot of times where I'll say, look, I understand, you know, the, the reality is your son didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be addicted to cocaine. You know, your daughter didn't just come home from school one day and decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be an alcoholic. Seems like a great idea. It doesn't happen. There are always an underlying issue. Now, whether that whether that's mental health or whether that's situational or environmental things, Nobody just wakes up one day and becomes an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. And that was the thing, too, is there was other factors. You know, we could dive into it. But I knew from a very young age that something wasn't, you know, I would look around at other other kids 
and, and they seemed like life just was easy to them or they were always happy. Or, and, I, and, and I remember from a very young age and I couldn't explain what it was because I was young. Um, but I just knew that I was different. I, I knew that I thought about life differently. I felt differently about situations. I was a deep, you know, it's not like I was a deep, deep thinker like I was a you know, a but it was, it was one of those things where it's just like, I would watch a movie that was sad and I would get really, really sad, like more sad than my peers. So I just felt more. Hmm. And so I think it does get to a point for a lot of us where the, the feelings and the overwhelming emotions that come um, from that reality, which I can get to later, it, it is the fact that we, we get exhausted it is overwhelming, and then you just find the substance that finally just calms you down. Mm. And it doesn't matter. It's, again, it's environmental. What is the first thing? Some people were, uh, this heroin was on the table. It was cocaine. It was pills. Maybe it's just anything. Because for mm. me, it started because that was what, you know, was available was alcohol. And then very quickly, it changed to other things. Mm. But it is, again, it's just, like you said, some people, maybe it's, all of a sudden, I'm going to be just an athlete, and I'm going to be addicted to growing my body and being a football player. I'm going to be addicted to school, and I'm going to get straight A's, and I'm going to go Harvard. And it's just, again, a lot of people find something external to put all of their time and energy into because, again, they just want to get outside themselves. It regulates the internal whatever, like if it's anxiety, depression, feelings of what, like low self-esteem. It's an external thing that will regulate the internal thing. And the, and the irony is, is a lot of people, I would argue, almost everyone deals with this to some extent. It's just the individuals that happen to choose substances. That's that's the ones we're talking about on this podcast. Right. Right. Yeah. But obviously the ones that became addicted to school, they're not going to go to prison for being addicted to school. Right. right. No, this is well, this is actually the, the scary part is they get rewarded. They get rewarded. Like I say this all the time, like. In our society, burnout is like a badge of success in our society. Like in our culture, we reward people who overwork. Like we we, we sort of hold it up as like, a, oh my gosh, look at that hero who just never has time for anything. And so you're, and then it's like, then culture's feeding the problem instead of addressing it. And it's saying you actually will reward you for regulating all of your insecurity and, and, and low self-esteem with all this extra work. We'll reward you and give you badges of success and trophies for it. So it's, then it's even harder to get out of. Then it's even harder to climb out of. It's crazy. And we're going we're gonna to give you a very large salary. Yeah. For yeah. going to school for eight years and never doing anything that actually f- uh, fueled your soul. Yeah. So let's, so, okay. So you, the snap, so you're in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. You start drinking with your brothers. So I want to unpack a couple of things. So the first thing you named was belonging, which I think, again, I think all of us can connect with, like they're especially during that age, but even as full grown adults, so many of our decisions, good, bad, or indifferent are driven by our desire to belong, to connect, to, to be wanted by somebody. To, and so as you've had time, which I know you well enough to know, you have spent a great deal of time telling your story and diagnosing yourself in your own story. Like were there other factors at that time, in addition to your desire to belong, that led you to seek out some sort of external regulation method, which just so happened to be alcohol? Were there other things going on, other factors? So, and and also something to keep in mind is in sixth grade, I didn't take that first drink and become a full-blown alcoholic. It is a 
a slow progression. Sometimes it's quicker than others. Sometimes it's slower than others. But I, I did not immediately become an alcoholic. The reality is, is that that situation happened that I touch on because it's important to touch on. But then I really didn't drink again, you know, for a couple of years. I'm a si- I'm in sixth grade, right? Yeah. I'm not going to go down to the ABC store. But I got SpongeBob SquarePants on TV. Like, what are you correct. talking about? Like, <laughs> So I continued on my life and, and, and I continued in the eighth grade and then there were situations here there where again maybe the parents were you know out for the night and the older brother was watching us where I would have a drink here or there but again I think like you just stated perfectly where it became uh, the, the big issue and the other things that factored in um, was that constant pressure and, and I think whether it was my generation or even a generation before my generation, that constant pressure of you have to find something. You have to be good at a sport. You have to know what you're going to college for when you're in the ninth grade. You better get accepted into every college. And it's also, again, it's environmental, right? Because there's probably not that reason why people become addicted to things in other parts of the state. But I do know in this area in particular, there is a key, I call it the keeping up with the Joneses syndrome, right? Mom and dad, dad's got the Silverado, mom's got the Tahoe, the house that's ridiculously overpriced that you're never going to actually live in. And it's just this, I have to look good from the outside, yet I'm miserable on the inside. And as kids in this area, we, we realized if, if we don't get into a college, if we don't have our shit figured out, right then are we failures and then for me it was one of those things where there was no one there along the lines to be say you know holland if if you actually don't like playing sports that much you're not a failure if, if you actually don't know what you want to do when you grow up you're not a failure but for me it was getting into ninth grade new school didn't know anybody we had moved from one side of apex to the other i wasn't supposed to go to apex high school i knew like three people from lufkin <laughs> middle school and I remember just looking around and just, you know, I was, I didn't know anyone on the soccer team and I was a great soccer player and it was just too much. So I just said, you know what, it's probably easier to just come up with an excuse to quit than to try. And I remember school was a little bit more difficult for me. And again, it was, you know, rather than ask for help or admit that school is difficult. Cause again, you got to understand my whole life school, I got straight A's. I got straight A's and then all of a sudden it's like that one B and I'm just like, yo, I'm a failure because I got a B. You know, I was phenomenal at soccer until I try out and I don't get varsity. They want me to practice on the JV team for freshman year and then they will bring up the varsity and sophomore, which again, to a normal individual, that's just life. Life happens. But to me, I didn't make varsity as a freshman. I failed. So I need to scratch soccer and find something else. I didn't get into AP classes as a freshman. Even though I got A's as a freshman, I didn't get into AP, right? So I failed that. So scratch that. So you've got these outside factors where I think, again, it was just there. there's a lot better uh, as far as conversations going on now and, and people understanding to – that we're not robots, but I do think my generation was. It's just our parents were able to do it, so why can't our kids do it, right? And for me, it was the, you know, I felt like I was letting people down. I felt like I was disappointing people. So when that started to build up, I remembered how alcohol made me feel when I would try it those few times during middle school. 
So I knew where to go. I knew what the only solution was, and, and it, I just, you know, started, and then it started to progress from there. But I remember it was just getting high, smoking weed, or drinking. Those were the only periods where I did not feel overwhelmed. So, sixth grade, you're introduced to it. This is just like a timeline question. When, and I know it's probably impossible to like pinpoint when, do, but like oh, relatively, when do you think it sort of like it hit a place where you were like, I would say in sixth grade, it was introduced to it, it became a problem. here this point in the journey this point in the timeline is when it was like i was going to it regularly i was thinking about it all the time Uh, i would say um ninth grade going into here's the thing too that you know again it's always going to be environmental but for me i was really really good at understanding that what i was doing was wrong the whole time so i didn't just all of a sudden like switch and say don't care, just, you know, going to give up on, no, my dad did a great job of raising me to be his son, and I knew what I was doing was wrong, um, so I learned a lot of masking behaviors, which again, later on will come back to, to bite me, um, but the, the reality is, is I was still going to school, I was still, I played lacrosse, I found a different sport, so I was doing all these things to try to continue to be that perfect model that, you know, the, the what Holland should be on paper, mm-hmm. but the, the, Irony is that I was much older, you know, I was a year older than everyone in my class, so I got my license a little bit earlier, obviously, and that was, for me, that was when it became a problem, Hmm. right, because there's only so much you can do as far as obtaining and and doing, you know, I'm riding a bike or I'm skateboarding around Apex trying to do this and that and the third, and it's just you're limited, plus you don't have a job, right, so that's limited, but I remember being a lifeguard and when I started getting money, that was when it started to ramp up. I remember having weed more often because I had money from being a lifeguard when I was 15. And I remember turning 16 and I've always been, uh, I've always enjoyed working. I've always been a hard worker. So finding a job and keeping a job, it was never an issue. But when I turned 16 and could get that job that would pay me every week or every two weeks and I had that license so that I could transport, that was when it started to ramp Ram- up. Cause you know, it was an everyday thing that I could leave the house whenever I wanted. I had money. I could buy stuff whenever I wanted. And so that was probably a, the summer from ninth grade to 10th grade when I got my license. That was when it became an issue. So you answered, you kind of answered my next question, but then it led to another question. My, my next question was going to be like, during this time, were you going through some sort of denial where you were like, nah, man, like, I don't have a problem. Like, it's, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, you already answered that. You were like, you knew, you knew what you were doing was probably not healthy, probably not good for you. But I guess, like, <clears throat> I mean, I knew I was smoking an illegal substance, but at the same time, there was no, there was no legal issues yet. Mm-hmm. Right. There was nothing. Everyone was doing and That was the other thing, too. Everyone's doing it. Yeah. Right. Because I'm not the only kid that's smoking weed or drinking Bud Light in the woods. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it with other friends. So there is that period where, again, and this is the irony of it all. Right. There's every high school has kids that are going to drink beer and they're going to smoke weed. 
But the re- reality is, if you were to grab like five kids out of each group that are that are trying to smoke weed and, and drink beer, because again, it's happening. Nobody's in denial. It happens every single day in every high school. But what no one will ever be able to figure out on the front end is of those five people you pick. You know, a couple of them are going to still continue to go through school, go to college. They'll drink all through college. They'll get a bachelor's degree, maybe go back, whatever. They'll get married. They'll find a job. They'll move on. But there's also that one or two of those five where they just do it a little harder. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that have that personality, that addictive personality. But again, you can't catch that on the front end because it's all the same. Got it. Got it. So how did you... So if it wasn't denial... So one of your justifications was everybody's doing it. Like it's who cares? Like it's not a big deal. What were the other things in your mind? How else did you justify it? And this is important because I think like, I think it's just an addict's brain just works a little differently than like, um, and so like I know from my own experience of living with someone uh, who is an addict that there's just things addicts tell themselves that other people don't or just, or they can't get there. They can't like, it's just, I don't know. It's like a really interesting sort of thing. So like, I guess like bring us into this is ramping up. How are you justifying it? And just sort of being like, well, sure. It's not right, but then fill in the blank. Like you said, addicts are very good at justifying. We're also very good at being storytellers. And we'll tell some great stories to ourselves. And I think for me, for the most part, it was the the story I told myself was you were not happy. Uh, You were very anxious or insecure. Your quality of life wasn't that great. Um, And then for whatever reason, in my mind, when I was either high or when I was a little drunk, I was a better person. I liked that version of Holland. I felt comfortable. And so my justification was everybody wants me to be happy, right? Everyone wants Holland to to be okay with who he is. So they should be grateful that I became a scientist overnight and figured out the compounds that it takes for Holland to be the better version of himself, right? Because it it was the, you know, I wasn't, I was shy. I I didn't, you know, I I wasn't who I am today. It's, It's hilarious when I had to do the get up in front of class with a poster board or a PowerPoint and share. I was the kid that borderline panic attack. And, but if I was a little drunk. We're off to the races. I'll talk in front of anybody. Hmm. And so I, I think the justification was is it just it made me a better version of myself. Yeah. Hmm. So it starts ramping up. It starts ramping up. Tell me about, so when do, and that's the thing. That's what's also like so interesting is like, and I've heard people tell this story as well, like, substances make me more confident. They make me more of this than even more um, relaxed and not so anxious all the time. They make me a better version of myself. And so it all, it always works until it done, (laughs) until it done. So give me some, some early stories of like when the wheels started falling off the wagon. So when it was like, so I'm sure, and I'm sure again, this is where, like, again, addicts are just really good at manipulating situations. They're telling good, they tell good stories to themselves. They tell good stories to other people. So I'm sure you could actually keep, you actually probably were able to keep up that act for quite a while. But then again, the wheels start falling off. So, like, 
what was maybe like an early example, an early instance of like, oh crap, maybe I don't have control. I mean, honestly, it would be the the first legal situation I got into because a lot of individuals, whether they're in recovery, uh, I'm sorry, whether they struggle with addiction or don't, that first legal thing that someone in high school, you know, maybe maybe unluckily you got a DUI, right? But you were just drinking, or maybe you get a drinking ticket. Um, get caught with a little pipe here or there and you get a citation. I got possession with intent to distribute marijuana as my first ever charge. <laughs> right to the deep end. Yeah, I'm a 16-year-old <laughs> kid. And the, the cop is like, Dude, you really wasted no time to become a felon. <laughs> no loitering. No like, yeah, Mm-mm. right and in. That, that was a clear indication from anyone on the outside looking in. Is just like, hey, most 16-year-olds carry like a gram of weed around. You know, maybe like a enough to smoke with their girlfriend tonight. And this man's got a whole gallon Ziploc bag of weed under his seat. Why? You know, so that was probably the first indicator. That was my first experience with... Going to jail, um, and that's another thing where as far as I know addicts are different because it's going to sound really, really bizarre for listeners who have never struggled with this, but I still to this day will remember going to downtown Raleigh, sitting in that jail cell. It was the old jail. It wasn't the new one. You know, it was disgusting. It was dark. It was like two in the morning, Um, and I remember just sitting there and hearing the other you know, other inmates in there talking and I felt like I had achieved something. I was almost proud that I was in jail. Like this is something I'm going to be able to add to my personal credential as far as being, you know, a tough guy or or being something more than others. As all my other friends, they can't say that they went to downtown Raleigh and they had handcuffs on and they rode. I remember riding in the back of the cop car and he was listening to like the pop station. And I'm handcuffed and I'm just bobbing my head. Kind of like the scene from Batman where the Joker is hanging out of the back of the window. And mm-hmm. he was just thrilled to be in the back mm-hmm. of a cop car. And I'll never forget being in the And I knew that they, I, I remember knowing like this is not normal. Like most 16 year olds would be having a panic attack that they're in the back of a cop car. And I was perfectly calm. Hmm. Well, and I think like if you bring, this is where like, I, I think you're right to tell the story the way you tell it, which is like, if ever you tell, these stories are never linear. They're never linear. They're like cyclical and you come back and you go forward and you bounce around. But this is where like it, it becomes really interesting to remember the origin story. Whereas like you're saying, I'm stepping into middle school and high school. I'm living in this place of high income and high achievement. I don't feel like I've, I'm, I'm finding my place to belong or I don't feel like I've got like things that define me because I'm trying, but I'm failing in a weird twisted way. Like that's kind of like a, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting way to read your experience in jail of like, again, just at the core is that not something all of us are starving for which is like identity and meaning and we're trying to help understand ourselves and our lives and like you you can you can say well holland was looking in the wrong place for that you that's that's another conversation i guess like the point i'm just trying to make is that like how human that is to just be searching desperately for something to define you to give you meaning to give you purpose even if it is a, in this case, a jail cell, a rap sheet, like how human that is. Well, just like you talked about this morning, people can try a hundred different ways to figure out 
what they are good at or what they find purpose and the sick reality is is I was really really good at convincing people that I had the best weed and I was really good at being a criminal until I wasn't but that was something that my friends didn't have yeah. my friends didn't have the soccer players hurt. didn't have that no, like, they, everyone, yeah. everyone was too straight scared A student to didn't do. have that Yeah, and I created that identity of like Holland will do this Holland's not afraid to go in and steal beer or Holland's not afraid to bring this over or go to this place to get drugs from this and so I created again the absolute worst identity that you could create in high school um, versus all the other productive ones but to me I was that kid that everyone knew like Holland's a bit crazier you know, he's a, he's a little bit more ballsy. He'll he'll do those things, and I fueled off being that guy that everyone knew. If they needed something, Holland would do it. Because mm. then I was needed. Mm. My phone would never stop ringing, text mm. messages, phone calls, and I was popular. Again, I wasn't popular for being the quarterback of the football team, or popular for being you know this, the the prettiest girl in school. But I was needed, and I was popular, and I found my niche. Yeah. It just again happened to be the worst niche to be the best at. But. but this is like this, but this goes to the other reason as to why recovery I think is probably so hard. Again, I'm not an addict, that's not my story, but like I can imagine if I were an addict, I can imagine one of the biggest obstacles not only being the biological piece of it and the mental piece of it, but also just like the purely like the I don't know. I I I used, I got a really clear identity and I got some achievements and I got some notches on my belt. Like I got some stuff. And if I were to become sober, I'm essentially throwing all of that in the garbage and who the heck am I now? And what the heck am I good at now? Like if I, I know it's broken and you know, destructive. Like I get all that, but at least it's something and it's better than nothing. Like if I pitch this, I got nothing and I don't know who I am and I'm of no value to anyone. I can imagine, even though it's not true, I could imagine thinking that way. Correct. And that being part of the force that feeds this thing to go, well, don't you dare let anyone see, like, don't you dare admit, don't you dare get help. Like, this is... Well, it's, it's scary. Yeah. To put it in short, it's scary. So, you know, for, from my experience, and, and there's literature, you know, part of a program that I work, in the in the book that I read, there's a sentence that is just is, is beautifully put, but it's essentially saying, you know, endless possibilities and lost dreams awaken. Because the reality is, is that there are a lot of things that we did want to do or we did want to be, but at some point, the, the substances kept us from doing that. So I say that to say, although when I finally did get into recovery at 25, with really nothing but a Wake Tech degree and no really prospects. I had a car, luckily, that was paid in full, and, and then that's pretty much what I had. I had a car that was paid in full when I was 25 years old. No real other prospects or anything going on for me. It's a very, very scary thing to essentially start over at 25 and realize, hey, everyone else started building their future at 14, 15, 16, started preparing, you know, like I said, going to college, creating their net worth of just who they are. Sure. And I'm 25 in Asheville getting let out of a treatment center. And, and again, they're clapping for me because I got 60 days sober, yeah. which is a huge deal. But I think that's what the program does better than any other aspect of life is you get awarded for the small things that matter. 
Hmm. You don't have to have a master's degree from Duke to finally get your dad to give you a hug. You get 30 days without drinking and your dad gives you a hug. Yeah. And it sounds cheesy, but for a lot of humans just in general, that approval and that acceptance, there's a lot of it lacking in our world today. But that was one of the things that kept me going when I had nothing going for me was the small little achievements that seemed to be so monumental in the recovery community. I think that's the brilliance of the chip strategy. Correct. Like that's the brilliance of the chip strategy is they know, like addicts know, the community of addicts know better than anyone that to choose to get sober is to take this uh, trophy shelf that you have built and essentially burn it to the ground and start over and just how terrifying that is. And so they're like, okay, we're going to make sure that when this person does decide to throw away that life or like, you know, start building something new in its place, we're going to do it in bite-sized chunks. Um, and we're going to do it with the things that matter, right? Like, like exactly what you just said. Like we're not going to reward being burned out and overworking. We're going to reward like, did you, like you, you survived today mm-hmm. and you, you made a conscious choice not to relapse today. And you called your sponsor today. Like, man, little wins, little wins, little wins, little wins. And then before you know it, you do it for six months, a year, beyond, little, God willing. The little achievements add up. Yeah. You know, we, could, we could circle. I, I try to circle recovery into every aspect. Cause the reality is, you know, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, my opinion alone, but everybody honestly could work a 12-step program. Yeah. And they probably look at life or appreciate life or just be a little bit more grateful because the, the reality is that that's, that's what, that's what works. Hmm. And that's the thing, even today with the amount of time that I have sober, I could, I could call my sponsor and let him know that I did something really monumental and he would say, you know, good for you. But then he would probably ask me, but like, how was your ego? Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd be like, well, you know, did you, you know, how, how do you feel? You know, how does Holland feel about Holland today? And, and that's the thing. He's more concerned about, like, do you love yourself? Mm. Are you at peace with who you are today? Did you have any spiritual awakenings about, like, things you want to do better the next time you were in a situation? Like, he doesn't care about that I'm doing a podcast with you. Mm-hmm. He cares about, did I grow yeah. from doing a podcast with you? Mm-hmm. Again, it's the, the little things that actually matter rather than the su- superficial things. So... You, t- you gave us one example of this que- uh, the answer to this question. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us some more. So one low point you mentioned was the first time you got arrested. Mm-hmm. Again, you're right into the deep end. Is that a felony charge, I assume? So essentially, in short, it was a felony, but because it was my first felony and because I was under 18, you know, they gave me 12 months of probation. I completed the 12 months of probation and it got expunged. Okay, okay. Which again, to circle back to the main point, because I knew... That was going to happen because my parents got me that nice lawyer that was able to work out that plan. Again, green light. Like, my life's not over. I'm not going to prison. I'm not going to have a record. So, really, I didn't learn anything. And there's, yeah, there's no motivation to really stop. Correct. It's just like, okay, I just got to get better at hiding it. Like, I just got, I got to learn right. new, I got to learn new masking tactics. But again, the around. psychology is as long as, as long as my parents pay for a good lawyer, I'm never going to get in trouble. Cause yeah. that's what that situation taught me. That yeah. situation didn't teach me that maybe driving around with mm-hmm. large bags of weed was wrong. Mm-hmm. What it taught me was, Hey, there's things called lawyers. Yeah. 
and my parents have enough money to buy these things called lawyers and I actually won't have to deal with any consequences. So bring us into, so that was one low point. Bring us into, what were some others? What were some other key defining low points after that? So, I, I mean, I, I guess the reality is, is that I began to choose drugs over everything. So everything in my life began to disintegrate. You know, I, I remember I, I was... I was decent at lacrosse for somebody who didn't grow up in the Apex community where they breed lacrosse players. You know, for a first-time player, I was okay, but I remember choosing to skip practice to smoke weed versus actually going to lacrosse practice and eventually chose weed over lacrosse and gave up on sports in general. Like that was that was the last sport I played in high school. That was the last team sport I played in general was, was that lacrosse season. School, I began showing up high. My teachers started calling me out at Apex. I was late. I would sneak out. Um, you know, there was just this, the, the, it was, uh, again, there's not necessarily major low points as much as, again, it was just this trickle effect of more and more that began to add, to add, to add. Because um, you get in like a volcano, all of these things begin to add up and then you just explode. Um, I remember making it essentially to senior year with again minor issues um you know the probation kind of kept me from going too crazy for that year so I think that probation if I look back did save me to get through another year of high school because I knew I couldn't get in trouble um but the irony is I remember at like six months of that probation they dropped me down to unsupervised which meant all I had to do was not get in trouble but there was no more drug testing. There was no more, like, visits. I didn't have to go to the probation office anymore. And I remember the day after my PO called me and told me, you're on unsupervised now, I went and smoked weed. Immediately after. I was like, I'm good to go. Did my time. I'm going to go smoke weed. <laughs> I'm going to celebrate. Um, but, yeah, essentially senior year, some low points were the fact that it was just I knew that I really – I don't even remember at any point in high school planning to apply for college. And I think that's kind of interesting to look back at is – I was so focused on being a drug dealer and getting high and doing everything about getting high that all I wanted to do was work to make money, sell drugs to make money. And there was just this complex of, I just, I think I've, I looked around and I saw other people in Apex and I saw, you know, because again, my parents were, you know, middle class. They weren't hurting for money. They weren't, you know, poor or anything. But I also grew up in a town where I saw kids that were pulling up in Mercedes with their learner's permit, and it just blew me away because a 16-year-old girl can't drive a Mercedes in a parking lot. But it seemed like a great idea at the time. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm comparing myself, and it's just like, you know, I got, you know, my parents were able to afford me like a nice $5,000 used car, but definitely not a brand new Mercedes when I turned 16. So I do, the financial aspect is something that played in as far as I viewed money as success, you know, property or vehicles as success. And so I was on this track of, realizing that I was able to make a lot of money selling drugs a lot more than, you know, working or going to college. But it came down, you know, it came down and backfired. It was a situation where I, you know, got 
uh, an anonymous tip came in from my parents to look in the trunk of my vehicle and they found a, a scary amount of multiple substances, pills and, and scales and baggies and, you know, that, uh, they ended up getting rid of it and I remember them getting rid of it and immediately my first thought was, A, how am I going to get high? B, I owe somebody a lot of money. Which then ramped up the stealing because I no longer had any money, I no longer had any way to get substances, and uh, I'm an addict who's addicted at this point. So then Did I, you know that at this point? Like when no, was there No, you don't know. Okay. Okay. I want to come back <laughs> to the know. I want to come back to that question because like I'm curious I'm curious when the light switch goes on of like oh it takes a while because, again, you got to understand, like we talked about, where I grew up and where I was from, there was no such thing as white addicts in Apex. It didn't exist. That was in Durham, right? That's what we're told. So I'm not, I'm not an addict. I'm not addicted. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I just really like getting high. Fascinating. Right? Yeah. It, is, it is quite fascinating. It's, it's laughable at this point, too, because, again, you got to keep in mind what 17, 18-year-old kid from Apex decides on a Tuesday evening, I'm going to take some Xanax, right? I call them larceny biscuits. Everyone I've ever met who takes Xanax enjoys a good larceny from time to time. And I'm just going to go break into places so I can get stuff to pawn so I can buy more larceny biscuits. And again, that is the exact behavior of someone who's addicted. I'm doing anything I possibly can illegally to make sure that I can fuel my addiction. And the low points are not, I mean, we'll get to when they become transformational in a moment, but like all the low points up until this point, more legal trouble, all that stuff. It's not, hey, maybe I should stop and reevaluate. It's more so like, like you're, you said your first thought was, dang it, now I got to figure out another strategy to how to get my hands get on it. Better, like I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to get better at this. Better hiding spot. How did I let my mom find that? Crap, let me do this. Let me try it, you know. And that's the thing, too. You ask, like, when did I know? So I get I get into more legal trouble when I'm a senior. I get kicked out of school. I show up to a football game drunk. They, you know, send me to, you know, the Southlight in the area to complete, you know, an outpatient program. As long as I complete the outpatient program, I'll be allowed to continue my senior year, um, graduate, yada, yada, yada. But all of this is like mandated like you're not volunteering oh, this. Oh you're like yeah. it's all mandated and then that, again that's that's a big thing to keep in mind too because they let me continue to go to apex high school as long as i was enrolled in this outpatient program mm. um and again they made it abundantly clear <laughs> principal white i'll i'll put him out there because everyone knows he's the sweetest man in the world but he, it was one of those sad situations where, again, I look back at it later and I realize how many people were able to see I had a problem well before I had a problem and they just wanted to help. But I could not comprehend it mm. because when I got kicked out of the outpatient program for, guess what, not showing up, you know, he pulls me into the office. He's like, look, man, like you, you got kicked out of the outpatient program, which was contingent on you being in school here. I have no choice but to expel you. So I get expelled my last semester of senior year, which that adds a lot of emotional, you know, funness to the works. But I remember Principal White sitting me in his office and he was borderline like tearing up. He knew I was a good kid, but I was addicted to something that made me different. 
If I wasn't high, Holland was a good kid. When I was high, it's the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. But he's looking at me and just saying, like, I don't want to kick, you know, Brenda and Paul Steen's son out of high school on his senior year. But by, you know, essentially he had no choice because that's the rule that Wake County had set in place. And it was just probably one of the toughest conversations he had with a student, you know, at that time. And, and yeah, I remember just, you know, walking out of school and, and part of me was just like sick. Now I don't have to go to school anymore. I was not able to comprehend the big picture. And that's the thing. Until someone sits you down, until something happens, I don't think any addict can see themselves. I know they can't see what they look like from the outside looking. Because that's a problem that I dealt with even when I got sober. Right? So, And for our listeners who are not addicts, and even maybe for myself... Is it a, that, like those low points, is it unwilling or unable? Meaning like, and it could be a combination of both, but like, <laughs> you said your first response was, sweet, I don't have to go to school anymore. And so I guarantee there's some people who are listening to this who are like, how could that be the first thought upon leaving that office? How does that, and I think like, this is where like, I, I, I think, People who don't suffer from addiction, they make a lot of assumptions. and They they might be listening and they might be tempted. I know I, there's part of me that always has been. Tempted to hear those stories and say, no, you weren't unable to see the consequences. You're unwilling. You're unwilling. But like, I guess what I'm asking for you to do is take us inside the mind of an addict. Because you, like, you used the language of unable. You were like, addicts can't. Like, there's certain parts of the journey where addicts can't. They just can't even see beyond like where this is headed all they can see is, okay, then how do I hide it better? How do I, where am I going to find it now? Like, so I'll, I'll say it like this and I'll give you two examples. But like we spoke about in the beginning about, you know, an addict being a very good storyteller, being great at justifying their using or their actions in that situation, you know, it, it is a protective measure. It's the, you know, I talk about it as the disease will go to all ends of the earth to protect because it wants you to continue to use. And even if that means making you not see what the world sees. So, I, you know, the reality is, you know, getting kicked out of high school and not having like this. Dev- the reality is that I did. You know, I'm a kid who I know is about to get judged by the entire town of Apex. I'm not going to walk on graduation day. I'm not because, again, you have, I get kicked out of high school and about two weeks later they take me to a treatment center. So my using it ramped up significantly because, again, I'm feeling all of this guilt and shame. It's there. I can't hide it. I'm getting more and more drugs to try to mask it. But it was, you know, my mind telling me, don't deal with it. You don't want to. You don't want to deal with how embarrassed you are right now. So my first thought is, yeah, sick. I don't have to go to school anymore. I can get high because now I can get high all day and not have to think about anything. Mm -hmm. But, again, something... You know, this is later on, you know, as far as the mind of an addict not being able to see um, see themselves for what they are, how other people see them. It becomes something later on that is probably one of the most valuable traits that I have now. Because the reality is, is our self-worth and our insecurities and who we are, we talk about as far as a spiritual bank account. And essentially when someone gets to a rock bottom, their spiritual bank account is nothing. 
and those the chip system you talked about the the high fives the small rewards seeing a little bit of hope feeling a little bit of hope now you're building that spiritual bank account back up you're, you're completely debilitated and slowly but surely you're starting to feel because addiction will make someone on the inside completely dead you know they're a functioning body on the outside but as far as the inside they feel nothing they think nothing we're, we're absolutely spiritually dead um and so that that's the thing too is that it's just you know my sponsor and i talk about it all the time because we are extremely hard workers um, but we're not hard workers like you were t- talking about as far as the world and the society telling us to be hard workers, but it's the reality of is I'll never feel good enough. I'll, I'll never feel as if I'm deserving because of all the things that I did and all the things that were said to me, like getting kicked out of high school. That didn't just disappear. That's something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. And so these are all things that are weighing somebody down so that when you get, you know, addicts are really, really hard at, at receiving compliments. If you ever talk to someone in recovery and you say, hey, you know how, you know, I saw you did this, you did a good thing. You'll start to notice they won't look you in the eye. They won't, they won't smile or say thank you. They'll very quickly divert to another subject because we do not feel worthy, right? And, and that's the thing, whereas, you know, I remember talking to my sponsor once. You know, he's the executive director of a, a very successful treatment center. Um, and he's, he jokes about, you know, writing his uh, signature on his high school diploma in crayon, right? Because that, that's, that's his story. No college, you know, he was in active addiction um, and he, he got, you know, he got in recovery and he just started working in this industry. And in this industry, knowledge and experience is everything because there's not, you don't go to NC State and get a bachelor's degree to run a treatment center. It, it doesn't exist. You just have to know how to do it. But he gets up and he goes to work at 7 in the morning. He works till 7 p.m. He's always on his phone. He's always on his email. And he's just got this ridiculous work ethic, which one would say that instead of being addicted to drugs now, Holland's addicted to work, which I probably am. But I, again, I don't go to prison for being addicted to work ethic. But he explained it best where I asked him, I said, why do you, you know, what do you, he just said, Holland, why, why do you think I work so hard? And I was like, I, I don't know. You love your job? And he's like, yeah, sure. But every single day I have to prove to myself that I am deserving of my title. Because every single day my mind tells me that I'm not. And I, I think the, the thing to take from that is as far as is just that every addict deep down inside, like they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing to their family. They know what they're doing to themselves. They, they know it all, but again, it's... But it beats the alternative. Tuck it away. Yeah. Tuck and run. It beats Mask. the alternative than confronting all of that. Correct. Because <clears throat> just... a lot of us, when we do finally get it, it's because we, we don't confront it all, yeah. but we finally confront some of it. Yeah. You know, what am I actually doing to my mom? Actually looking at the situation, not having a blinder to it, but actually looking at the pain I'm causing my mom and saying, all right, you know what? Holland, you are extremely selfish at the very least you should probably stop drinking not because you want to i joke all the time i I love the good wild turkey and a line of cocaine not i didn't wake up one day and not enjoy cocaine (laughs) it's it's still good but i don't like the consequences Mm. so i choose not to today because i don't like the consequences of what happens when i do so uh, i want to start to wrap up um so you've been actively in recovery now for how long? Three, uh, three years and four months. 
Congratulations, uh, first and foremost. And I think one of the other things, uh, the other parts of your story that I've always admired and I've always, uh, and and listeners of this podcast will probably hear me quote this person several times, this quote several times, but uh, Henry Nowen has this beautiful quote where he says, you know, there's no such thing as the, to bring the, the whole conversation full circle, there's no such thing as like this self-made person who has it all together and made it out of life scot-free, wound-free. Wound he says like the most successful person is the one who uh, turns their wounds into places for healing. So we're, we walk around as wounded healers, wounded healers. Like on our best day, um, that's what we're trying to be. I think one of the things I love so much about your story so far, which again, we are still very early on. We might be in chapter two, maybe by now, but I think one of the things I love most about your story is how you are turning this incredible wound uh, that you have and you've dealt to other people as a, an instrument of healing for other people. So you get out of recovery. Where are you working now? In the treatment industry. Yeah. So like you turn right back around and enter into the very same thing that was instrumental in helping you confront those difficult parts of your story and get help and get in recovery so that you can help the next guy, the next girl, the next person behind you who is where you were one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, whatever, find the same good news of healing and hope. And so I guess like my question is, what has that experience been like? And what, what has it done for your own recovery to be a part of those conversations with folks, some of which who are at ground zero, some of which who aren't ready? What has it done for yourself? Again, you know, I'll, since we're wrapping up, and I've been quoting some things. The reality is that the only reason I'm sober today is because of this program, and that's just my story. And, and you know, the program I work isn't the. It's not this way, and this is the only way it works. There's multiple different ways that work, but something we always close with as well is we can only keep what we have by giving it away. What was freely given to us, we must freely give back. Because who I am today, the man I am today, the fact that I am sober today, that wasn't my doing. It was my predecessors guiding me, showing me the ropes, giving me hope, you know, loving me before I could love myself. And the reality is, is you know, I've worked very, very hard. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I've always loved working. I've always had a, a strong work ethic. I realized that working in the treatment center was the best way to help somebody and the best way to you know, get into a field because I knew I probably couldn't be a nurse with my background, right? <laughs> so it just worked. But the reality is that there's no amount of money, you know, there's, there's no amount of, you know, just anything material that fills my heart with as much joy as to, you know, if I talk to a mom from Apex and she's just, you know, we're not even going to get her son into treatment. Her son doesn't want to get help. He's in denial. But at least I'm taking 20 minutes out of a day to talk to her to just give her a little bit of hope. You know, those conversations, I've never hung up on that phone and been like, hey, I wish I didn't take that phone call. I wish I would have spent that 20 minutes watching, you know, The Office. Never has that happened. It's, it's always I feel a little bit better. And there's a high. And, and the reality is, is that that's, that's how we... Individuals who used to chase a high, that's how we stay where we are now, is we're still chasing a high. It's just a different high. 
but the only way I feel as good as I felt when I was getting high is when I help somebody. And again, there's multiple different ways to help somebody. You have to figure out the way that works for you. But for me, it is just possibly taking time out of my day to give to somebody else, regardless of who it is, any alternative motives, any benefits gained, just taking time out of my day to give somebody a little bit of hope like somebody gave my mom three years ago. Last question. If someone's listening to this and they're early in their, maybe they're, they've not yet made the shift or made the move to like receive help and get help, or maybe they're just fresh into that, fresh into that atmosphere, what's one thing you would say to them? Just keep showing up. There were many, many days in my early recovery where I wanted to just give up and get high or I didn't see why I was doing this because um, there's not. You know, we, we love instant gratification. That's why we love drugs because it gave us that instant gratification. But in recovery and in life in general, there's a lot of things that you don't, you don't show up your first day at work and get promoted on day two. doesn't work that way. But just, just keep showing up because the reality is, is again, I wouldn't be here today if I'd thrown in the towel. I just woke up every day and just gave, you know, as much effort as I could that day and, and just kept trying. All right, friends. Well, that was the first half of my conversation with the Steen family. Now uh, we're going to shift. And now you're going to hear from Brenda Steen, Holland's mom. Because those of you who this is your story, uh, this has been your experience, you know that uh, while addiction is very, very painful uh, for the victim, it can be equally as painful and trying for the support system, the friends and the family members around them. And so now, please enjoy my conversation with Brenda Steen. So, um, Brenda, you, we're going to get into uh, your story uh, a little bit. You are the parent of uh, someone who battled substance abuse. And so before we get into all of that, I thought a really interesting place to start uh, is to back way up. So to back way up. Back way up to before this was ever an experience for you and for your family, for someone you love, did you have any sort of preconceived notions or preconceived ideas or beliefs about addiction, people who suffered from addiction, alcohol in general? Like, I mean, back way up before this was ever personal for you, kind of like, I guess, where what were some sort of preconceived thoughts, beliefs, ideas you had about it? That's a great question. Um... So I really didn't think about addiction until we were in it. I did think about uh, drug users. You know, like when when I was growing up, uh, there were people who used drugs, uh, and it wasn't anyone that we knew. Um, You think about them in the inner city, and it was just this faceless person who was a junkie. I mean, you know, not a positive connotation that's what I thought of there um 
my father was an alcoholic, but at the time I didn't realize my father was an alcoholic until we started experiencing problems with addiction. So my father is one of 10, seven boys, and of the seven, five are alcoholics. I think what you may need to know, or I don't know if you need to know this, but I think this will come up later on. My mother was severely bipolar. And so during that period of time, um, bipolar wasn't treated the way that it is today. We didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the medicines that we do today. So she was in and out of mental institutions the time that I was growing up. I didn't have a stable childhood. So my father's drinking really wasn't the issue. It was more her Mm. staying healthy. So, you know, it was multifaceted. Um, And so you choose whatever, well, you you do whatever you can to cope, but you choose, you know, the worst of the evil so that you can move forward. And and keeping her stable was really important. And, you know, in hindsight, he was drinking to escape all that stress. You know, when she was manic, she would shop. We had, um, he worked three jobs at one time just to try to pay the bills because, you know, And that's a whole other story for people who understand bipolar disorder. But so that was happening over here. My father was drinking over here. Uh, I didn't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about normal because we didn't, I didn't have a normal upbringing. So, um, and again, at the time you just, you just do it. You move forward. And I didn't put a whole lot of credence to any of it until I became a mother. Well, and you're right to you're right to point out sort of the inter- intersectionality of all of these things. One of the things that I learned very early on from my own experience is that, and I'll never forget when someone said this to me. They said, "So often, not always, but so often, addiction is not the disease; it's a symptom of something else." And so you're connecting up like mm-hmm. there's you you always need to look at not only the thing. But the thing behind the thing, right. if you're going to, which again, I think to give a lot of our substance abuse uh, treatment centers and stuff credit, I think they're they they're paving the way of helping us understand that uh, dual diagnosis is a regular part of this conversation, mm-hmm. and so we're not only going to be treating the symptom but the thing behind the thing, and so mm-hmm. that's that's so fascinating. So, so back to what you're saying, like that's so fascinating that it's like I didn't think about it until I had to think about mm-hmm. it, which. I just thank you for saying that because I think like that is, is that not, and I mean, we're we're talking about addiction today, but is that not true of every single issue out there that you don't, that it's just, it's, it's just sort of normal to get in a groove where, oh, I don't really think about poverty or I don't really think about what it would be like to raise someone who is LGBTQ. I don't think about that until I'm in the ring and I got to sort of think, oh, oh, like I have to now very quickly figure out what I believe and what I think about all this other stuff and I never had to. So thank you for sharing that because I think that that's probably indicative of so many of our experience with so many things. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not, I don't need to really process and work through it until it's like in my home. Right. And it was, mm-hmm. and it was. So you shared a little bit of this backstory a moment ago. So <clears throat> that experience in second grade when you said there was like, te- so was that when you think about when and how it entered your home, are those like, I feel like sometimes there's the, the big blow up moment where it was like, oh, my child is an addict. My child is bad. My child is a problem that we're going to need to figure. But I feel like as a parent, 
you it's only normal for us to like we look backward and we sort of retroactively were like oh like now that now that makes sense now that uh story of what happened in sixth grade makes sense oh my gosh like this is so fascinating so was that one of them for you or were there others that you were like just sort of like things like now you look back upon you're like oh that's interesting that this was like this was his temperament this is what he this is how he approached life this is some of the things he struggled with like or do you see any of those now? So this is where I think our story is very unique. Um, but um, Holland did not have the telltale signs. So I almost feel like I want to leave this in here because for a lot of people, there are those telltale signs. And I don't want to freak out the person who has the second grader who's having those. But at the same time, like, oh, if you can get them into therapy, maybe a little earlier. Like, you know, and again, I don't have the answer Um you can beat yourself up and say shoulda, woulda, coulda, and kill yourself. That's right. So, and I don't want anybody to do that with the second grader whose teacher saying, mm, "You better nip that in the bud," because I don't want to. I don't want to put on anybody the guilt that I felt. I don't, because it's hell. And that's a really good place to just sort of interject and say, parents who are listening to this, one of the takeaways that should not happen as a result of listening to this episode is like, "Oh, holy cow! Now I need to be." hyper scrupulous and interrogate all of my children's sort of actions to sort of make sure I see it before it happens because as every parent in the world knows like you can you could be the most hands-on parent Mm -hmm. on planet earth and your child could still experience things that you didn't see coming that you had no control over I think we experienced we talk about this a lot with families who Uh, have experienced trauma or sexual abuse or things like that like you can be the best parent in the world but you can't shield your child from everything and again ultimately they're also an individual autonomous human being who gets to pick what they want to do and what they don't do and that sort of thing so thank you for saying that because i I definitely wouldn't want that to be something that uh, we do as parents or as people with any type of influence over younger people to go oh my gosh i need to sort of oh the answer is just being hyper scrupulous to make sure i discover everything before it becomes an issue because you won't. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, but I guess like my question was like, is there, were there things, so your, your answer was like, no, like there's, there were, or there wasn't, I mean like, sure, sure, maybe, but for you, it's when you look retroactively, there were, with Holland, it wasn't instances of, oh, he's a little bit more rebellious or, oh, he really sort of has trouble listening to what I'm saying. It's actually the counter opposite, which actually I'm just so glad that we're going there right now because I think especially in suburban contexts like the one in which we inhabit, that is often the children, the teenagers, the young adults, the people who are battling opioids and substance abuse are not the, it's it's like my, my grandma used to say like, it's not the like rambunctious, rebellious child you need to worry about. It's the quiet one over there in the corner. <laughs> like that's the one you gotta like sort of just like keep an extra eye on. But it's like because they're putting all that pressure on themselves to be perfect all the time and have, and create this image and mm-hmm. be perceived as this person who's got it all together. And eventually they crumble underneath the pressure and they try to find something that will numb all of that. So mm-hmm. it sounds like, I mean, sorry not to speak for you, but say more about that. I guess with now that you've. Had- to answer your question, Holland did not. He he was a people pleaser. He was on honor roll. He had friends, teachers loved him. Polar opposite from his brother. I mean, mm. again, you couldn't have two two opposite kids. 
And, um, but when he got to high school, well, we moved, you know, I tried everything, you know, to try to, we, they were in your own school. I switched tracks to get Joshua away from some of those kids. Because one of the things you do as a mother early on is you blame the other kids, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's always the kids he's hanging around with. Not my child. He, and in some instances, that influence definitely is there. I listened to your podcast this morning, and it sounds like before you moved to Colorado, you know, those people you were hanging around with, if you hadn't moved. So there is truth to that, but it's not always the answer. So... um I switched tracks. We physically moved from one side of Apex to the other. I wanted Holland to go to Apex High. I was working in downtown Apex. We were going to the Methodist Church. I felt like, okay, if I can get him in with a good group of people, you know, he has a greater chance of succeeding. So we did that. Um, and he was trying out for lacrosse. He had played soccer. And he just wasn't performing well athletically. And... You know, I think here in, in Apex and probably all of Wake County, just this, these kids start playing soccer at four. That You know, it's so competitive. So to make the school team, you have to be really, really, really good. And he was a good athlete, but when he didn't make the team, you know, so there's kind of like notch number one, you know, knocked down. Um, and then, you know, I don't know what happened. Like, I don't know if you guys will talk about it, but somewhere there was this shift where he started hanging out with the kids that partied and he was popular with those kids. And then that just morphed into this whole trajectory of drug use. So let's dig in. Let's get a little bit granular. So can you tell us the story of like the first moment when it surfaced, when it was like, oh, like he maybe he was a story of a party or he came home up like drunk or something like that. What was the, do you have a first memory where you're like, where it was first introduced into your life, where it first sort of came into your home by way of Holland? He was arrested. So we, we received a call from the apex police and they believed that he had something in his car or something had happened. This was a while ago. And I just remember Paul was on the phone with the police. First it was Holland, and then he handed the phone to the police officer. And Holland was such a charmer, the police officer was going to let him go. And then something happened. Something fell out from under the car, or something happened. And I found a bag of weed. And the police officer was this close to letting him go in the morning. Because Holland's, you know. Mm-hmm. And we were almost there in real time. Because Holland, you know, had the phone going. And when the police officer said, we just found X amount of marijuana, we're going to have to arrest him. Paul and I were like, I mean, it just, yeah, shock, shock, shock. So that was the beginning of, you know, just, I don't even remember what year that was. I think he was in 11th grade. So then. Um, so can I ask yeah, a question? Yeah, please. In that moment, did it was so? Was that the moment where it shifted? Where it was like, "Oh, this may not be normal teenage stuff. We may have something deeper on our hands." Yeah, because it, it was a lot of marijuana, and coming to find out, he was dealing. So, so yes, one thing when your child abuses drugs, it's completely different when they're a dealer. When they're that far in, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets arrested. He gets arrested, and um, I believe we bailed him out. I had to get a lawyer and from it gets a little foggy sure 
Um, things got worse. He's in 28-day rehab. All of his friends are getting ready to graduate Apex High. He was expelled, so he couldn't graduate. Um, and he gets out of 28-day 20 rehab, and I'm thinking, okay, we're good. You know, a lot of people, 28 days, get this problem, you know, put it in a bottle, put it on the shelf, we're good to go. Well, it's part of the, and again, maybe you can even default back to that. You can say, okay, even like, even like having a little bit of legal trouble, that's again, falls in the bounds of normal. We're okay. And now it's behind us. We're yep. yep. His girlfriend at the time, um, came up, I was working in the office and she was crying and she was like, Miss Dean Holland's using again. And he was only in rehab for two weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh. Can okay. I ask, can I ask a question? Sure. So you said earlier, and I, and I know this from my own experience, um, like, Addicts' brains are just, they're, they're just, like, and you can talk to psychologists about this, they're just different. They're different than someone who is not an addict. They're just different. They're made up of different, they're just made differently. Or, or they're just sort of formed and such differently. What were the, I say that to say, because you said earlier, you said he, he was really good at masking things. I used to always say about the, about the people who were addicts in my own house. They're just, they were brilliant manipulators. Like just, you were talking about charmers. And like, I can just think of story after story in my own life where it was like, you all, like, it's just so tempting to believe them. You're just like, it doesn't take, it, it actually takes like several occurrences of like, oh, okay. Like I've been duped 75 times. So like, this is probably not actually true. But like it, it's hard. Like at first it's, so your conversations early, was he do like was he doing kind of that? Was he doing that kind of stuff? Like, yeah, I'm good now. Like, this is good. I feel good. Like, how? What were those early conversations like that sort of led you to? I mean, like, was when you were talking to him about having a problem, was he sort of dismissive of? It's like, no, 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 I don't have a problem. Like, what? What? How was he reacting and responding to y'all? What were your conversations with him like? So the facility that we sent him to is one of the finer ones in, in North Carolina. And his counselor um, said, I don't think he's ready to be released. I think he needs to go to a halfway house. And uh, I dismissed it. You know, Holland was, I was like, Holland's got this. It's fine. He'll be fine. He doesn't need to go to a halfway house. At the time, he was 18. And I'm thinking halfway houses is a bunch of, you know, has been old men. I didn't listen to her because I was in denial. You know, in that area where you stay in denial, where you're hurting yourself and everyone else, such a terrible place to be. But it's also a protective mechanism. Because, like, you know, if I'm in denial a little bit, it keeps me from actually embracing how bad this problem is. So it's, yeah. Anyway, um, brought him home, thought we had it under control, didn't send him to halfway. And uh, two weeks later, he was using again. And because he had legal issues, he had to go see a probation officer and he had to do a drug test. And so I would go with him. She did the drug test and she came out and she was like, you're testing positive. Oh, and we're going there and he's telling me he's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. 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 It's going to be no problem. Okay. It's fine. And then she comes out and she says, you're tested positive for X. And I can't remember what he tested positive for. And I was like, what? And it was some street drug. It wasn't just marijuana. And I mean, again, I was mortified. Um, so we're trying to figure out what to do. They wanted to put him back in jail. I didn't want him to go to jail. So he'd been arrested a couple times. Every time he was arrested, we would bail him out. Didn't let him, 
sit there. And, you know, sometimes I think you should let him sit there. For well, let me ask this, because I think you're going there already. Like, let's just go ahead and go there now. You said you worked really hard. Mm -hmm. Worked really hard <laughs> to not feel guilty. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, though, there were moments, especially early on, when you did. Oh, yeah. And where, like, so I guess, like, can you bring us through that? Like, so where we are in the story is he, it, he's out and had numerous instances of legal problems. He's been in and out of jail. This is now, like, this is a, this is not just typical high school boy behavior. This is something that is much deeper. <laughs> I think why I want to dig into this question a little bit is because I think there are a lot of parents out there, and maybe it, it isn't just addiction. Maybe it's something else entirely, but I just, it is amazing to me. Uh, how crippling guilt is. And while we might have responsibility over some of our decisions, I just don't find a lot of value as a pastor. Like, I don't find a lot of value in guilt. I think it, it or, or shame rather. Like, I love Brene Brown's quote. There's mm -hmm. a, the, the biggest difference between shame and guilt is uh, guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. So maybe we'll shift from guilt to shame. Like, I think mm -hmm. shame is the thing that I. I always want to sort of uncover in my own life and sort of give light to and get rid of because that's not, there's no value in it. It just holds me back from healing and growing as a person. So I guess like what, what examples of shame did you battle through this, uh, especially in the early, early years of it, your early sort of attempts to handle it and to help him? What types of shame did you battle and how did, and how did you battle it? Um, yeah, so the guilt is in thinking you're not a good enough parent. Like, did we discipline him enough? Did we not discipline him enough? Um, <laughs> did we not love him enough? I mean, I think that's probably the hardest thing as a parent is you think you can love behaviors out of them, and if they still behave in that way that you're begging them not to, then you wonder if maybe your love wasn't enough. And that's really hard to think, to have that feeling. Um, and I still sometimes have it. I just, like I said, try not to go there because it will kill me. But you know, when, you, when you're a parent, you feel responsible for your child's behavior. And little stuff, you know, big stuff, you you feel responsible. You know, your child has the temper tantrum at Target, and you're like, oh my gosh, people are looking at me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the shame comes in, because you're worried about what other people think. And people say, oh, don't worry about what other people think. But when your kid's face is in the slammer, which, you know, people, I don't even know if that's around anymore, but when your child is arrested, people know it's a small town. And you know people are talking. And you like to think that they're saying caring things. But you also suspect that they're saying some things that are not so caring. And that they're judging you. Because their child just has a 4.5 GPA and they're going to Duke. You know, I mean, living in this area, having a child like this, it's hard. Um... It's very hard. And 
during that period of time, I alienated. Um, I didn't want to be around other people whose children were successful. And I know that sounds awful, but I, I, I was happy for them, but inevitably the conversation was going to come around to what my kids were doing, and I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there because it was painful, but I also didn't want to go there because they don't understand, and they still don't understand. So unless you've walked in these shoes... You can sympathize, but you can't empathize. Yeah. yeah. And as a protective mechanism to get through this stuff, mm. you have to set boundaries with whom you spend your time. Mm. Well, and I think part of that, part of that was probably really healthy. Probably that was really healthy because as you point out, not everyone's had this experience and not everyone knows what it's like. And we all have been on the receiving end of a little cliche that had such beautiful well intentions everything happens for a reason Brenda it'll be <laughs> fine God's gonna where God closes the door just look for that window mm-hmm. like right there's like we've all been on the receiving end of those things and so I actually think and I say this all the time to folks that I actually think there's something deeply godly and deeply faithful about saying for the sake of my own soul I cannot be around these pockets of people right now. I need to only surround myself with people who are safe people. When I say safe people, I mean someone who can, who can go there with you and, and who can, and and not to say they have to be someone who's experienced it directly themselves, but they have to be willing to at least sit there and be quiet and listen. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. as the preacher, this is the classic story of Job, right? The classic story of Job. Job's friends are always ragging on him because like, well, obviously you probably did something wrong to get this outcome out of your life. So like, what did you do? How do you fix it? And over and over again, Job's like, that's, that's not true in this instance. That's not true. And so I guess to go back to that whole conversation on shame, what was there a moment uh, was there something that shifted? Like, I, I, I could just only imagine as a parent myself, you kind of spiral, spiral, spiral into this deep, dark place. And then you eventually, it's like you said, I, I, you said, like, I would stop myself. I would not allow myself to go down that any, any further. Was there, was that just you? Or did you have people in your life sort of help you out of that and help you sort of like, what, where did you find sort of hope in the midst of it where did you find because this is the other thing about recovery is that it doesn't there's oftentimes there's not a nice neat clean ending to the story it's a story that keeps going it's a keep it's mm-hmm. a conversation that uh is is lasts for a while and so i guess like my question is like in the midst of that where did you find life and hope and where did you find I don't know, just a, a different way to react to it than, well, I'm a really awful person. I'm an awful parent. I did something wrong. I'm the one solely responsible for this. Like, you didn't go down that road. So why not? Or how How not? Like, how did, how did that happen? Well, I did. I mean, so it's it, the path is not linear. You know, so there would be days or times that I'd go down that road. And then I'd be like, mm-mm, you know, back up. Or, you know, move forward or, I mean, it's, it's, this challenge is, again, it's not linear. So you have good days, you have bad days, you have good hours, you have bad hours, you have whatever. Um, And it's a constant work to keep your head above water. So, um, and, and I say work because you could just never get out of bed 
and not function and just not function. Well, can you take, can you actually, I meant to ask this earlier, can you take us inside of that? So as someone myself who really loves to compartmentalize my life and just go, okay, we'll just put the messy part over here with something like that. Eventually it's just bleeding over into everything. Mm -hmm. Like it's bleeding. I mean, you're married, so it's bleeding over into your marriage. It's bleeding over. You talked earlier about how it bled over to your friendships. Some, Mm -hmm. some friendships you just walked away from Mm because you were like, I just can't, like, I just can't do this. They won't understand. It's not fair to them. It's also not fair to me. Like, where are some other places, work, uh, marriage, where it was bleeding over and impacting you? So, work was a big one. Um, I can, I have a tendency to be a workaholic. And um, at that point in time, I was the executive director of the Apex Chamber of Commerce, which was a, at the time was a high-profile job. And um, it, long hours, high visibility, you know, you go to town council meetings. You'd, I'd go to church and somebody would ask me if we could put a stoplight in. Like, I had no control over that, but they, <laughs> they thought I did. Um, you know, and it, if, the funny thing is at the time I didn't realize how, how high profile it was. I just did it. And it was really, truly a job that I loved. Um, but things were getting out of control. Um, funny thing was they got much worse. But... Um, at, in 2012, in between Rehab 28 and 90, um, we kicked Holland out of the house. And um, and I'm telling you what, when people say, just kick him out, you know, tough love, just kick him out. Whoa. I cannot tell you how hard that is. It's just easy to do it when you're not the mom yeah. of the child. Yeah. It's well, and, and the whole Al-Anon philosophy, you're enabling, you're enabling, you're enabling. And so, you know, and the Al-Anon philosophy is fantastic, but talk about feeling guilty. You're enabling. So not enabling is detaching with love, and detaching with love means kicking your child out when they don't follow the rules, and rule number one was you're not going to use while you're living under our roof. And he did use, and so we kicked him out. And um, 2012, in between rehab 28 and 90, he left for the weekend. We didn't know where he was, and I was petrified. And um, the Sunday before, it was a Sunday, and I was actually swimming at the gym, and I had a full-blown panic attack underwater. And I was like, <gasps> like I couldn't breathe. And the stress, you know, panic attacks are just stress that you're not dealing with. And um, I think I kind of stayed in this panic attack mode for a while. And then one advice I can give anybody when you're dealing with this is mental health days are sick days and you need to take them. Because if you have had crisis or trauma, you should not be going to work. You need to stay home where you're safe because you don't make great decisions when you go to work and you've just had a crisis. Like, if they take away nothing else from this podcast, take a mental health day when crap has gone down at your house. Because again, it's just, it's human nature to like, we like to think there's these nice, neat rooms where I can shove, okay, I can shove the Holland stuff, the parenting stuff in this room and I can just go and work. It'll be fine. Yep. Nope. Went to work on a Monday. He hadn't, I didn't know where he was. And, um, the slightest things happened at the office. And I mean, little, little stuff that wouldn't really bother anybody that was normal. I, I flipped. Like, I didn't yell at anybody. It wasn't like that kind of flip. 
I grabbed a box, I grabbed my personal items, and I said, I'm leaving. And my staff was like, what? What? <laughs> what do you mean you're leaving? I was like, there'll be a line of people who want this job. Don't you worry. Bye-bye now. And they were like, what? What? And I called uh, my boss, the board president, and I was hysterical. Nice guy. We're still friends today. I was like, and I was hysterical. I was like, Jeff, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Because it's, it's a high-profile job. So, um, you know, whatever. It'd be like you going through crisis and having to come up here and preach. You know, and maybe you've done that, you know. And, and God bless you if you have. Because you know how hard that is. <laughs> it's really hard. I couldn't do it. Like, I reached a point. I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. And, you know, they were like, can you just take a leave of absence? And I was like, I can't go back. I can't. your marriage you know was there like was it did you just have to start having a rule where you could like okay we're gonna at the dinner table we're gonna talk about anything else <laughs> like did it was it a was, was there seasons where it was all you talked about all you did was problem solve or was what was that like we didn't talk about it a lot so we both worked a lot we didn't fight but we didn't communicate a lot so was that out of like a I mean, do you have any perspective on it now? Was it sort of like a, it's just so hard and so painful that it's just so hard to be in that space? Because I'm, I mean, you're a mom, he's a dad. If you're not talking about it, you're definitely living there in your mind. You're definitely living there in your heart. Was it sort of like a, was it an avoidance or was it a like, just purely you didn't have any idea what to do or just sort of how to react and so it was just like well we're doing the best we can let's just keep moving it was kind of yeah survival mode how about with the other boys mm. during this time i Your mean clearly clearly we neglected them but uh we we were just trying to keep our head above water you know, Sandra Carinder once said to me, a mother is only as happy as her unhappiest child, which means you're focused on the one that's unhappy. You shouldn't be. But we're just, we're just trying to keep him alive. I mean, it, you know, one point we got a call from him and uh, Paul had to go get him and he was on Western Boulevard. He was passed out on the side of the road on Western Boulevard. You know, I mean, like, and, you, you know, like, there were times when I'd go in and check on him, and I would touch him, and he was cold to the touch. I mean, I was so worried he was going to OD. I went, I went in once, and I, like, flicked water on him just to make sure, I mean, you know, just, we didn't, we weren't really sleeping. Um, we were just getting by. two more questions okay if you're okay with it sure two more um i think you have rightly and accurately drawn the picture for us 
of the challenges and the complexity of living with and loving someone who suffers from substance abuse. The harsh reality of this conversation and any conversation about someone who battles addiction is oftentimes, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's like, like you said, it's not, those are not linear stories oftentimes. They're also not stories uh, with nice, neat conclusions. Um, I don't think this is something you ever get over. It's something that you learn how to get through. Mm -hmm. You learn how to get through, maybe is the best way to put it. What are some, like as a pastor, can like as your pastor, can I ask like how, what role faith played in helping you get through? And it's like, again, get through makes it sound like it's past tense. It's like ongoing tense, right? It's like how, what role did faith play? Um, my faith was not strong. Um, I remember when I received the call from my neighbor, you need to come home. The police are going to break into your house if you don't get here. And um, I pulled into the cul-de-sac and there were five police cars and walked in my house and Holland was handcuffed and they're going through my house. And um, I mean, really during that point in time, I was like, where's that dude named Jesus right now? Because he hasn't been here the past couple of years. I mean, I was, I was angry and felt like maybe he was there for other people who prayed more, or went to church more. Or, you know, followed the rules, but I wasn't a good girl, you know, wasn't really going to church, uh, wasn't finding any comfort at the church we were attending at that point in time. People weren't reaching out, uh, probably because I was like, don't mess with me, you know, my body language sometimes. Um, but we weren't part of a, of a, a community. We weren't part of any community, really. Uh, and so, you know, for anyone who's going through this, please find a community. And I know it's so hard. But please find a community because it's really hard to do this alone. And you shouldn't have to do it alone. But I understand. I mean, I did it. We did it alone. Um, so in hindsight, um, you know, I feel like Jesus was there all the while. Uh, prison actually gave Holland the opportunity you know, for 29 months to reflect on his life. Um, had he not had that, he may not be here right now. You know, so God's hand was in that, clearly. And, and other incidents where he is still alive, his hand is, is and has been in that. But it really wasn't until we started worshiping here that we felt, um, I can't really speak for Paul, but it wasn't till we came here. Well, actually, we came August 15th, 2016. I remember the day. And we had heard about you and we'd heard about the peak and I felt like we needed to get back into something. It's kind of like going to the gym. I'm like, I need to go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> so we and we tried a couple others and we came here and Joe started singing. I was like, oh my gosh. And then you preached, I don't remember what you preached on. And Paul and I laughed and we were like, wow, we feel something. Uh, it was a while before we got involved. You know, we were outside the pool you know you've got the pool and then you've got people in the pool and you've got people in the chairs and you've got people outside the fence looking in we were outside the fence looking in we knew we wanted to be in the pool at some point we were we were damaged people mm -hmm. and um and we were guarded and so and we also came here too because at that point in time we only knew a couple of people that were coming here mm -hmm. and we felt safe with a couple of people that we knew were coming here 
And then the longer we've come here, the more safe we have felt. And so I have no problem sharing this story with the people that attend the peak. And I'm also to a point now where, you know, I, I know that our story has helped other people at least feel not alone. And that if, if we can do that, then it's worth being vulnerable to do that. Friends, thank you again for tuning into this episode of Views from the Peak. One of the missions of our church is to try to destigmatize uh, social issues and conversations like the one we just had. And so one of the things that we hope this podcast did for you uh, is it brought to light realities that you may or may not be aware of, um, experiences that you may or may not be aware of. And at the same time, if this is your experience, we also want to be as supportive as we can. And so I want to encourage you that if this is a reality of yours, a reality of someone you love, please visit some of the resources that we are sharing attached to this post, uh, different websites, different educational materials, different groups that are available in our area uh, so you can get the support that you need. Friends, thank you again for tuning in to this episode. We look forward to hearing from you and being back together soon.